And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And then they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. God, we thank you for your word as we are traveling through this, what can be a difficult book, the book of Judges, but we know that your word remains true from Genesis to Revelation. And so we pray that this evening as we contemplate what leadership looks like, unexpected leadership, that we would, Lord, once again see your truth in our lives, that you would, Lord, draw us to rely on you with strength, that Holy Spirit, you would give us the focus and the attention, the humility of heart this evening as we would look at this peculiar story that is full of wisdom and full of your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> uh, many of you know I, I love movies. I love movies so much that I used to call them films uh, because I wanted to be super pretentious. No offense to anybody here that still calls movies films, but I did it to appear cultured. And uh, <clears throat> I would call movies films uh, to appear cultured, but also I would say that I liked movies that no one in the world likes because I wanted to say that they were artistic and you just don't get it. Uh, for instance, I uh, used to tell everyone that one of my favorite movies was The New World by Terrence Malick featuring Colin Farrell. It's a movie about Pocahontas. It's one of the worst movies ever made. Uh, they barely talk in the movie, and yet I just said it's, you know, it's really beautiful. And, uh, you know, the, the music and the wind communicates the message that you're just not getting. I'm sorry. Um, other people that call movies films like that movie. Um, I, I can now admit that I, I didn't enjoy it, just pretended. But I do love movies. And now that I'm honest about the movies that I like and I don't like, you know, I can, I can say whether or not it's a movie that appeals to me. And the kind of movies that appeal to me are suspense movies. I love movies that have a twist where there's an unexpected turn at the very end of the movie. So you may, you know, be aware that one of my favorite directors is Christopher Nolan, right? Christopher Nolan is a master of the unexpected. You expect the unexpected when you watch a Christopher Nolan movie. I mean, he's directed Inception and Prestige and Memento and Interstellar, all these movies where something happens and you're like, what is going on? Is Inception, the whole movie, is it a dream? I think so. What do you think? It's crazy. I love that. I love the twists and the turns. And when you watch a movie by Christopher Nolan, you expect the unexpected. And this evening, as we begin episode three of our series in the book of Judges, this story is a Christopher Nolan story. So you need to expect the unexpected. There's a twist. There's something that's going to take place here that's going to shock you. 
And so as we begin, we're, instead of jumping right into the end of Judges chapter 3, I want to begin in the beginning, which is a passage that we didn't read. But it starts at the very beginning of Judges 3, where a new cycle begins. If you've been with us the first two weeks of this series, you know that the book of Judges is all about cycles. The cycles of the people of God rebel against God. God is angered by their choices to turn and worship idols. And then God allows consequences to befall the people of God. They eventually realize their, their sin and their wrong choices. And then God redeems and restores them when they confess their sin and repent. It's this cycle that keeps turning and turning. And here is the next cycle that takes place. Verse 7 says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. This is how it always starts in the book of Judges. It's the repeated refrain all throughout the book. The people of God are serving God, they're trusting in God, they're following him, and then something shifts where they begin to say, nah, we're going to go serve Baal and Ashtaroth, these idols. We're going to believe what culture is promising for success and happiness and wealth, and we're going we're to worship those gods. We're going to give our attention and our time to those gods. This is the first turn of the cycle, the first rotation, is that they rebel. And it says that they, they did something that was evil in the sight of the Lord, and what is it that is evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, they begin to worship idols. But there's a really key word there. It says, they forgot. Look at the verse, verse 7. <clears throat> the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God. And so they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, two idols. <clears throat> Remembering and forgetting have, have spiritual significance. All throughout Scripture, remembering God and forgetting about God are spiritually significant. In fact, oftentimes you will read prayers all throughout the Bible asking God to remember something. So you'll see the people of God pray to God that he would remember his great mercy and compassion, which is asking God to act according to his character. God, you are merciful and compassionate. Will you remember your mercy and compassion towards me? Will you act according to your character? And then there are times where the people of God will pray and they'll say, God, remember my sins no more. So the prayer is actually requesting for God to act not according to what he knows. So God, you know I'm sinful, but remember my sins no more. Do not act according to what you know. So here what's being said is that the people of God forgot God, meaning they are acting not according to what they know. They know God. They know his desires. They know his love. They know his promises. They know the way that he's delivered them in the past. They know all these things in their head, but it hasn't become real to their heart. You see, they have head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. They, they forgot God. They're not acting according to what they know. And this is how the first rotation of the cycle happens all throughout the book of Judges, but it happens in our own life as well. When we begin to rebel against God and to believe the things that culture promotes as the things that we should worship and engage in and follow, all the idols that we seek after, it's because we forget. We forget God's love and his grace and his goodness and his truth and his way, and we run after these other things that seem like they're going to provide the life and the happiness and the joy that we're seeking. 
We act according to what we don't know. We display head knowledge and not heart knowledge. You know, one of the things that we're very privileged to, to not experience here in Miami is freezing pipes in the winter. How many of you are from a place where your pipes can freeze in the winter? Wow, a lot of you. This terrifies me, okay? Apparently, this is what happens. If you live in a place where it's really cold, like below uh, freezing, first off, why do you live there? Second off, if you do live there, you have to run water through your pipes in the winter because if you don't run water through your pipes in the winter, the stagnant water will freeze and your pipes will burst and your house will then be destroyed. This is terrifying. I would much rather change an AC filter every two or three months than have to worry about my pipes freezing and running water through the pipes. I was thinking about this this week because this is really what's happening here when they forget God. You see, our heart is like water pipes. And when you don't run the water of God's word and his grace and his love and his truth through your heart constantly, you let it remain stagnant, it's going to harden and freeze. And when it hardens and freezes, it will burst and destroy everything. And that's what's happening. You see, they're not running God's grace and his truth and his love through their heart. It's just in their head. And so their heart becomes hard and frozen. And they begin to look at Baals and Ashtaroth and idols, and they say, that looks more attractive. That looks better than what God promises and who God is. And so they go destroy their lives by running after things that provide a false hope because they're not running God's love and grace through their heart. And so what happens as they begin to go through this is that they face the consequences of their actions. You see, there's a, a verse in 1 Peter 2, 5 through 7 that began to kind of seep into my heart as I was reflecting on it this week about our hearts running to things that are not good and not true. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 7 says this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. How we are to live, the way that God has laid out for us is one of love and affection and steadfastness and virtue and knowledge of who God is. Does your heart freeze to those things? I know mine does. I'm not constantly living a life of affection and love and steadfastness and godliness. My heart freezes over to those things. Why? Verse 9 of 1 Peter 2 tells us, For whoever lacks these qualities, among others, is so nearsighted that he or she is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Having forgotten. Why does the cycle of rebellion repeat in our lives just like the Israelites? It's because we forget. We forget what God has done. We forget his forgiveness of our sins, his grace, his love. And when we forget the qualities and the things that God calls us to do, the way in which he calls us to live, fades away. We become nearsighted. And the cycle continues. And that's what happens here. The Israelites have forgotten their heart has hardened. They begin to run after and trust in other things. They're not displaying the qualities that they know in their head, but they're not real in their heart. And so they're serving all these idols. And so God 
brings about consequences. His anger, this is the, the cycle, as they rebel, God is angry and brings about consequences. As we said last week, when God gets angry, it can be a little unsettling, but God's anger is actually an outworking of his love. You see, if God didn't care and he had no compassion and concern for his people, why would he ever get angry? The reason that he's angry is because he's our father. And just like good parents that observe their children making choices that are harmful and detrimental to their life and their, their well-being and their happiness, parents will get angry at the, parent, at the kids making poor choices because they know the consequences that are going to befall them. And God as our Father looks at our choices that we run away from Him and serve idols and run after other things that provide the opposite of what they promise. And God is angry at the destruction that we're going to bring about as our heart has been frozen over, but his anger is one of compassion and concern. And so he brings about consequences so that we might awaken to the steps that we're taking that are dangerous. And so he does this here with the Israelites. He, he brings about consequences. They're enslaved by the very people that they are believing and trusting in. So the people of God are like, God, we're done with you. We're going to run after the Baals and the Asheroth and all these things that are promoted in culture. And God allows the consequences to be the very culture they're running after is the culture that enslaves them. They're enslaved and oppressed. And after eight years, eight years, they finally realize that they've made a misstep. That they've sinned and they've run away from God and made a very poor choice to run after these idols. And they cry out to God for forgiveness, and they cry out to God, and they repent, they return, and God delivers them. See, it's one of the things that we see all throughout this book. God is always faithful to bring about mercy and forgiveness when we cry out to him, to restore and deliver, deliver us. No matter how far we've run away, he always shows up. So they cry out to God after eight years, and God raises up the first judge. The book is called judges because God delivers his people through judges. He raises up the first judge, and his name is Othniel. And Othniel is your typical leader. He is a warrior. He is from the tribe of Judah. The Spirit is upon him. He is a strong man who comes from a great lineage and a great history in his family, and he delivers the people of God from oppression and from slavery. And then it says that they rested for 40 years. They rebelled they faced consequences. They were enslaved for eight years. They woke up. They repented to God. God raises up Othniel, this warrior from the tribe of Judah, who delivers them, and now they have 40 years of rest, stability, and peace. And you're like, things are going great. But then Othniel dies. And this is what happens every time in the book. When the judge dies, the people's hearts freeze over. They stop running God's word and his grace and his truth through their heart, and they begin to say, well, maybe we should try Baal and the Ashtaroth again. They forget again. Verse 12 says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so here's the next cycle in rotation. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which is they forgot him again and ran after idols. And then he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession, that's King Eglon, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, they took possession of the city of Palms 
And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So here's the next cycle. They've rebelled again, and here are the consequences. King Eglon has now got an alliance of enemies that have defeated and now enslaved and oppressed the people again. They've even taken the city of Palms, which was Jericho, one of their prized cities that miraculously God gave to them in victory, in a victorious battle in a miraculous way, has now been taken. And the people of God are serving Eglon for 18 years. Do you remember how many years it took them to wake up the first cycle? Eight. Now, 18. It's getting worse. It's taking them longer to realize their sin and their rebellion. But then it says, after 18 years, verse 15, the people of Israel once again cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, another judge, Ahud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So once again, after 18 years, they realize that they have run away from God. They've rebelled. They have sinned. They need to return back to God. They repent and cry out for forgiveness. God is once again faithful to forgive them and show compassion and mercy. And he raises up a new judge. His name is Ahud, and he's a left-handed man. I'm a left-handed man, so I like Ahud. How many lefties in the room? There's few of us, but we're strong. Hey, listen, we know what it's like. The struggle is real. We had to grow up with right-handed desks only, so we have very strong left hands because we had to learn how to write. We know what it's like to have pen all over the left side of your hand as you write across and smear everything. We know what it's like to play sports and people look at you weird like, why are you kicking with your left leg? We also know what it's like just to be treated as an outcast because we write with a different hand, you know? we got to stay strong, guys, all the lefties. Apparently, we die sooner, too, which uh, that's an unfortunate reality. It's just because we're operating at such a high level. But see, you read this, and you're like, okay, that's a weird detail. Like, Ahud, a left-handed man. Like, is that just to, like, associate with all the lefties? Like, hey, there's a judge that you can connect with. It's not, it's not that, actually. Um, it's a very important detail and descriptor for Ahud because the struggle for lefties in that time is like way worse than pen smudge and right-handed desk. Lefties during this time would have been outcasted and bullied and rejected and overlooked their entire life because the right hand was the symbol of power and ability. So you would never become a left-handed person. Even if you're naturally a lefty, you would force yourself to learn how to write with your left hand, right hand. It'd look real weird, but you would just do it because you would be overlooked and outcasted and, and rejected your whole life because the left hand was a, a weak hand. The right hand was the symbol of power and ability. And yet, Ahud is a left-handed man, meaning he doesn't have the ability to pretend to be a right-handed person. His right hand is most likely disabled in some way. So he has to exist as a lefty. And so he's overlooked and outcasted and, and bullied in his life. And yet this is the person that God chose to raise up to be the judge. Seems like a, a weird jump. You have Othniel, who is like the ideal leader 
In fact, Othniel is the only judge where we don't see any explicit flaws in him. And then the very next judge is Ehud, a left-handed man, overlooked and rejected and despised probably for most of his life. And yet what we will see is that God's choice of Ehud to be the deliverer of God's people is sovereignly orchestrated. Actually, every aspect of Ahud's life has been geared to this moment of where God is going to use him to deliver his people from their enemies. So what happens is the people of God, they, they gather together and they say, Ahud, you're going to go pay tribute to King Eglon. Tribute is like a payment. So they're going to bring a payment on behalf of the Israelites. They're enslaved. They got to pay. They're like, Ahud, you can't mess that up. I know you're a lefty, but can you carry the money and like hand it over? So Ahud goes. But what he does on the way is he fashions a sword and he puts the sword on his right hip under his clothes. He hides it. Now, this is important because everybody wielded a sword with their right hand. You swore by your right hand, you fought with the sword with your right hand, and you attached the sword to your left thigh so you could pull it out. So Ahud hides the sword on his right thigh because he's a left-handed man and he can't use his right hand. And so as he arrives before the king, no one even thinks to check him because no one puts their sword on the right hip, on the right side. He's a left-handed man. What kind of threat is he? So he brings the payment to the king, and King Eglon, it says, is a very fat man. Another important descriptor, actually. He's a very fat man. I always imagine like Jabba the Hutt. And he comes to Jabba the Hutt, King Eglon, and he brings him this tribute, this payment. And then Ehud says, I have a secret message for you that I want to deliver to you, but can we do it in private? King Eglon's probably thinking, well, what is this? What's this all about? But he's just brought a bunch of money. Maybe it's something else. And plus, I mean, Ehud's a lefty. What kind of threat is he? So something would not have been normal at all. King Eglon says, servants, guards, you can leave. And they're like, cool, Ehud, lefty, no big deal. So they leave. And he has a secret message to deliver. And he leans over to King Eglon. And here's what happens. It says, Ehud reached with his left hand and he took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly, King Eglon. And the hilt or the, the handle of the sword went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and then dung came out. told you guys this book gets wild. <laughs> so he leans over. He's like, King, I got a secret message for you. Pulls out a sword, thrusts it into Jabba the Hutt's belly. <laughs> He's so fat that his fat encases the sword so that it can't be pulled out. And then he defecates himself. And you're like, what is this? Why does this matter? Why is this here? You see, what takes place right after this is Ahud leaves, and he locks the doors. You see, the fat encasing the blade is actually significant because now King Eglon's fate is sealed. You can't pull the blade out. He can't pull the blade out. No servant, nobody else can pull the blade out. It's stuck in there. He's going to die. 
But Ahud leaves as a sword is stuck, knowing that King Eglon is going to die. He locks the doors, and he makes his way down from the terrace. You see, his chambers were up on the rooftop, and that would have often been the main entrance. Stairs coming up onto a terrace, then there's the king's chambers. And so he walks down, and he begins to leave the city, most likely passing by the servants, like, hey, secret message is shared. I'm out. Have a good one. He begins to head out. The servants come upstairs, and they notice the doors are locked. And it says that they smell a foul smell. Yeah, they did. But apparently, King Eglon, this very fat man, had bowel issues, and this was a common occurrence. So they assume he's using the restroom. So they're like, we'll just wait it out, give him some privacy. This happens a lot. He's locked the doors. He wants his own time. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And it's been like a long time. And they're, the servants think to themselves, this is way longer than normal. Like, we might want to check on him. So they open the chamber door, and they find King Eglon dead on the ground. But by this time, Ahud's gone out of the city. He's gone back to the Israelites, and he's been able to share the news that he has killed King Eglon, and they're able to rise up and secure their freedom from their oppressors. And then it says when they defeat their enemies, they rest for 80 years, 80 years of peace. You see, Ehud is, a, is an unexpected leader, very unexpected, a left-handed man, rejected despised, even bullied, overlooked. Nobody ever thought he would do anything significant with his life. How could he, people thought. And yet God uses him, all aspects of him, to bring him to this moment where he's uniquely qualified to deliver God's people in a really unexpected way. And he brings about double the rest of Othniel. Othniel, the leader type. The warrior from the tribe of Judah gives 40 years of rest. Ehud brings about 80 years of rest. You see, what Ehud reminds us is that God does not always work according to normal and common methods. Very abnormal at times. You see, God knew that the people would not trust a judge and follow a judge like Ehud because it had all these labels for him because of his left-handedness. And yet God uses all of that to bring about a place where he would garner respect and people would be willing to follow his leadership because he was the right man to lead them to victory and to freedom. And so as he shares how through these unexpected means he was able to kill the king and the people rise up and follow his leadership, and he brings about 80 years of rest. You see, in Judges 3, something really important is, is revealed to us is that God can use people like Othniel, the very typical leader types, to accomplish his purposes and to accomplish great things. But God can also use people like Ehud, people at the margins of society, overlooked, people that have labels that have been placed on them. You see, because God does not work according to stereotypes or expectations. He does not operate according to cultural stereotypes of you or expectations of you. Because God is not a God of works. 
Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, I mean, if God's going to use me as a leader, if he's going to use me to accomplish great things, then I really need, I need to increase my education. I need to fine-tune my abilities. I need to begin to, to do this and to do that. I need to kind of work on this aspect of my personality. All these things I need to begin to do, and once I work on them, and once I get better and kind of prove myself a little bit, then God's going to use me to do something great, to accomplish something, to fulfill his purpose in my life, and I'll find the freedom and joy there, but I got to work on it a little bit. God's not a God of works. He's a God of grace. He uses us where we are, however we were fashioned and made. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says this. Love this verse. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You know, you may not be a typical leader type. You may not identify as an Othniel. You may be like, I'm Ahud. Like, <laughs> I'm overlooked. I have certain labels been placed on me. I've placed labels on myself. I really don't view myself as having the same type of ability and charisma and talent as those around. If you feel like you're Ahud and you're not a typical leader, well, you're in like a really good place because God uses people just like you. He uses Ahuds to bring about 80 years of rest. It's so important to see that God is not bound by what you think of yourself or what other people think of you. Like some of us need to hear that. God is not bound by what you think of yourself or what other people think of you. I'm going to say that again. God is not bound by what you think of yourself or what other people think of you. Because God doesn't work and operate according to stereotypes or expectations placed on you or expectations you place on yourself. He can use Othniel and he can use Ahud to bring about deliverance and accomplish great things. You see, the truth is all of us in some way, shape, or form are left-handed people, even though there's like only five of us in the room. We're left-handed in the sense that we have things about us that maybe we, we struggle with. Maybe it's aspects of our personality. Maybe we feel like we don't have the, the right opportunities. We haven't received the right education. We doubt our abilities. Other people have said certain things to us that have created an insecurity in us. We have a lot of left-handed ways, and we're being told constantly that we need to become more right-handed. You just got, you got to fix this, start being like this. Here's what's normal. Here's what's obvious. Here's the type of people that really accomplish great things. So you need to go from being left-handed to becoming a little bit more right-handed in this way. That's not true at all. It's not true at all. God didn't make a mistake with your personality. He didn't make a mistake with your abilities. He didn't make a mistake with your opportunities. God doesn't make mistakes. In fact, God uses your mistakes for his purposes and plans. He doesn't make mistakes. He actually uses mistakes. And so if you feel like that, if you feel like, I don't know if God could use me because of my abilities or my opportunities or my education or my personality. I kind of feel overlooked. I'm rejected at times. I have these insecurities that I feel like keep me from actually accomplishing what I feel God has put before me. Regardless of whether you identify like that, which is like Ahud, or you're maybe more overconfident in yourself like Othniel, the truth is that we're all to accept who we are. 
because God didn't make a mistake with who you are, to accept who you are and trust that God is going to use you to fulfill his purposes in your life by his grace. Trust him. Expect the unexpected in your life. Expect the unexpected in your life. Because the greatest work that God ever accomplished was through an unexpected leader. You know, Jesus was rejected and despised. Isaiah 53 tells us that. He was overlooked. He was labeled. He was from a poor family, from a, raised in a town called Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And the slogan of that town was, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Poor, overlooked, placed labels, and yet he achieved his victory through unexpected means. He was an unexpected leader who achieved great victory through unexpected means. You see, as Jesus was being humiliated and, and beaten and tortured and, and taken to Calvary to be placed on the cross, what everyone assumed they were looking at was weakness. But his weakness was actually his strength. Through his weakness, his apparent weakness was his strength that brought about victory. You see, the cross was unexpected, and Jesus was an unexpected Savior. There's a major difference, though, between Ehud and Jesus. There's a lot of differences, but one very major one that comes out of this story. You see, Ehud shares a secret message with King Eglon. He wants everybody else out, and he shares a secret message to defeat his enemy. Well, Jesus' message to his enemies is not secret. He has no secret message. It is the good news to be shared, because here's the truth. All of us are enemies of God until, by grace through faith, we come to believe in Christ. We're made enemies into friends. And the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is not a secret message. It is a public message of good news. I love what 1 Corinthians 15 says. I really think this encapsulates the message of the gospel that's to be shared, that we've all heard and received for those of us that claim faith in Christ. It's a message of victory. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory came by unexpected means, through faith in an unexpected leader. You see, if, if you believe in this unexpected leader, Christ, you have been given victory. Victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the law, which is works. So if that is true, then no matter what you're going through, no matter what doubts you have about yourself, no matter what other people tell you, no matter what people claim about your ability, no matter whether or not you think you have the right opportunities, no matter whether or not you feel as like, I can never be a leader, I don't have it in me. Victory over sin and death is yours. So why would any doubt or any obstacle stand in the way in comparison to that? God has given you victory through faith in Christ over sin and death and the law. Don't allow the law to then affect you by downplaying all the things that God has put before you, his plan and his path for you. 
See, that happens when we forget God. We forget who God is. We forget that he has forgiven us for all of our sins, that he has given us his grace and victory over the law and over sin and over death. When we forget, our heart hardens and it freezes over. And when it freezes over, we begin to run after other things. We begin to listen to what other people say. We begin to chase paths that aren't good for us. You see, what we see in this story is that we need to let the water of God's love and his grace and his goodness and his truth and his way constantly flow through our heart so that we can trust in his ability and his plan and his purposes and the path that he has laid before us. We can believe and know whether we're an Othniel or an Ahud that God can use us for his glory to accomplish his plans. I love what it says at the very end in verse, the next verse after verse 15. It says this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's that next word? Knowing. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, we can expect the unexpected in our lives. We can be steadfast and immovable when we know who God is, not just with our head, but with our heart, his grace, his love, his mercy, and that the work that he's called us to is not in vain. It's not in vain. So expect the unexpected. Will you pray with me? God, we confess to you that we doubt your ability to move in our lives. We, we believe and we, we trust in what other people say more than what you say. We allow law to guide us. We believe that we have to work for your grace and for your blessings. God, forgive us of rebelling against you and chasing after the promises and the false hope that the world offers to us. And we pray tonight that as we listen to your word and we sing songs of worship to you and we come before your table in a moment, that it would refresh our heart, that we wouldn't leave here just knowing more information about you, but we would leave knowing you with a heart knowledge that moves us to trust your way, that your grace would move us and change us and shape us, that we would not allow the labels we put on ourselves or the labels that others have put placed on us to be the driving force in our life, but rather your promises and your word given to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.